All right, we're going to get started. Come on in, grab a seat. Welcome to the Wednesday Night Bible Study. If this is your first time with us or the first of a few times, these studies are survey sort of overview studies. And so we're spending one week in the book of James as we have many of the previous books. And the goal isn't to dig down into the nitty gritty of a book, but to kind of go through it a little more quickly so that by the time we go through each of these books, we have sort of this general idea of what the purpose was of each of these letters written to these churches and some to individuals. So tonight we're going to be in the book of James, which is a very, very practical book. So I'm going to pray and we will dive into the text. Lord, we come to you now and we are thankful for the opportunity that we have week in and week out to stop down in the middle of the week and to consider your word, to humble ourselves before you. Lord, I know for a fact that many people sitting in this room have had crazy schedules, have, had, have been keeping a crazy pace, and, uh, and I pray that um, the text tonight would be an encouragement, an encouragement to remain steadfast, and an encouragement to try to move wisely. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that as it is breathed out and we take it in, that it is, it is um, helpful that it is true, um, that it equips us for the good work that you call us to. Uh, so because of that, we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would bless our time tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians was about faith. Ephesians was about... I'm not even asking this week. Y'all notice that? I'm not even... I'm just saying it. I'm not even going to ask. Galatians was about faith. Ephesians was about grace. Philippians was about humility. Colossians was about new life. 1 Thessalonians was about the second coming, 2 Thessalonians was about hope, 1 Timothy is a book on leadership, 2 Timothy on success, Titus was a book of beginnings, and Philemon a book of forgiveness. Last week we considered Hebrews, which was about sticking with the best, where we don't come up with a second option or a backup plan for Jesus in case things don't work out. That is the best plan, you do not need a backup plan, which brings us to James this week, which James is a very, very practical book. And so our theme is going to be faith that works, faith that works. As I've said, it's very practical. So before even diving into the text, I mean, most of those sitting in this room have read their Bibles before, have been a part of the church, and before even diving into the text, I just wonder, what are some practical things that come to your mind um, that the book of James addresses? I want to see how familiar we are with it even before we dive into the text. Yeah, works is evidence of our faith. Nice. You would have made her proud right then. But you had the chance to really go either way. You could have, she maybe memorized, what was that? What was that? What was that verse? Yeah. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I make my children memorize that when they argue. Caring for widows and orphans. What else? Taming the tongue. What else? Yeah, to expect tribulation and trial. What else? Yeah, the prayer of faith there at the end of the book and healing. Yeah. Prayer of a righteous man. So we could probably pack it up and go home because clearly this is very familiar to everyone here. Um, 
But no, this, this is, that's good. This is a familiar book in large part because it's practical. So one of the questions that I have before we dig in is all this practical thing about how we talk, how we treat certain people, how we treat other people, how we don't treat certain people, how we use our words, how we use our, um, our time, uh, what, what faith should look like. My question before we dive in is what is one of the biggest challenges when it comes to receiving really practical advice? What's one of the biggest challenges? If, you, if you're searching, looking for something, and someone gives you just uber practical advice, what's one of the biggest challenges with advice that's really practical? Yes, the willingness to apply it. Why, why is that challenging? One, you didn't think of it. Some of us can't have, it's not a good idea unless it's our idea, right? Why else is that challenging? Yeah, sometimes it goes against how, how we feel. So you get, this, you get this thing going on in life, and you get this advice that's really practical, and in your mind you say, oh, well, all I have to do is that because that makes a ton of sense. But then the feelings and the emotions come in, and you're like, but maybe I don't want to do that, or I don't feel like doing that, or maybe it's an issue of discipline. I'm not disciplined enough to do that, even though that makes perfect sense. So because of that, James has kind of over the years been a book for it's really, really attractive to some people, and then some people aren't really digging it. Um, Spurgeon said of James, it's a right strawy epistle indeed. And so, he, you know, Spur, if, you're like, if you read James and you're like, oh, that's too practical. Come on, Christian faith isn't that practical. Christian faith is, is, is mysterious. And well, yes, there's a mysteriousness to it, but there's also a practicality to it. But you would be in company with Spurgeon if you thought yourself that it was a right strawy epistle indeed. So the outline for tonight's study is this. We're going to look at three myths. Three myths that are addressed and unpacked and shown to be lacking uh, throughout this short five-chapter letter. Um, This was written by James. Uh, James, um, likely the brother of Jesus. There's different opinions on if it was actually him or not. Some people think it was written later. I think the evidence is that it was written earlier, and it was written to... The church, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So there's a very Jewish language about this already, talking about the tribes, talking about the dispersion, and it would indicate that it was written earlier uh, than later. So myth number one is this. Here's the first myth that we're going to address. The myth is trials are bad. That's myth number one. So if you're taking notes, which I encourage everybody to take because there's no way you can get what you need by just um, hearing it. You need to hear it, and then the scriptures say, think over what I've said, and the Lord will give you understanding. And so that's why I take notes and keep a journal because I want that understanding that often comes later and not when it is being spoken the first time. But the first myth is that trials are bad. Dever says this in his book, behind this natural reaction of ours to say that trials are bad is the assumption Now follow me here, the assumption that good is something immediately apparent to us. Behind this natural reaction of ours to say that trials are bad is the assumption that good is something immediately apparent to us. And if something appears bad, then it must be bad. What are some examples of this? Think in your own life, or if you're uncomfortable sharing that, think in someone else's life that you've observed it. Um, But... 
this, this dynamic, what are some examples of this assumption that good is something immediately apparent to us, and if it appears bad, it must be bad? Does anyone have any examples of that in their own life where they've experienced that or seen someone else experience something like that? Yeah. 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 Because we're not perfect, but we're moving forward. That's a good. That's a good. Good example. What else? Yeah. Yeah, the trial of a job loss that turned into an opportunity that you never would have even considered. What else? Anyone else have any op- examples of lo- usually it's loss, sickness, or inconvenience, those kinds of trials where something good comes of it that you look at that and say, maybe that wasn't completely bad. You don't have to pretend that it didn't hurt. You don't have to pretend that it wasn't rough or, or painful or even excruciating. But, but any other examples of something, some kind of a loss like that that ended up having blessing in it? Yeah. Those final moments can become incredibly potent. Well, keep your eyes open on those kinds of things because those are some of the things that we see in here. This myth that trials are bad, um, James' hope is to help us work against our natural tendency to avoid all trials. I think there's a natural tendency that we have on, okay, that's going to be bad and I don't want to do that. Or there's change, and I don't, know, that's, I don't like the change, I don't want to do that because it's going to be bad. Or there's a, um, whatever trial, whatever hurdle, whatever challenge it is, we have a natural tendency as human beings to try to kind of avoid that. And James has this hope to help us work against that natural tendency of avoiding any trials. Um, he says in 1-2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, that's kind of one of those things where, as a devotional, it's like, oh, yeah, I like that. But then if you're in the middle of a trial, in the middle of loss, in the middle of heartache, it's like, I don't know if I'm really digging that. Count it all joy, because it, sa- it sounds like it's making light of your trial, right? It sounds like it's making light of the thing that you're going through. Well, if you feel that way, you're not alone, because apparently he expected that those who he was writing to would feel that way, and he immediately gives four reasons 
that trials are for joy. So in this first myth that trials are bad, he gives four reasons of trials being for joy. The first is in 1, 3-4, through four. he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the first reason that he gives that trials are for joy is that trials are described as the way to maturity. Trials are described, if we have a biblical, God-ordained view of trial, we can know before they come and when we're in the middle of them and then when we're looking back on them, that trials are for maturity. Do you all have any examples of that in your life or in something you've observed elsewhere? Yeah, it's almost like before that kind of a loss, you would never consider how that rejoicing would happen or, or that that rejoicing would even happen. But there's something about, you know, the way that I think that exemplifies maturity is that, that it brings you into touch with reality. You have this, this new perspective that's more eternal. You have more certainty of the life to come. And so I think a sign of maturity is coming more in touch with reality, at least when I'm parenting my five-year-olds and they're not in touch with reality and they're losing their minds, it's helpful to say, okay, let's consider what's going on here and bring it back together. Trials are described as the way to maturity. Uh, One example, the first one that comes to my mind is we had a bunch of financial issues early on in our marriage. And even when we moved here, I've shared that, that, um, that I couldn't even give what I should be giving as a minister of this church in my early 20s because I was too cor- backed into the corner of debt. And it was like, well, if I, I want to be faithful. I had that moment. I want to be faithful. And I said, all right, let's... Oh, man, if we're faithful, we're, we're hosed. This is bad. And I, and I had that moment of like, immaturity made me accept this debt and this debt and this debt and this debt. And there was a, a movement there where... I think God brought about maturity and changing my view of debt and changing my view of money and changing my view of what I uh, deserve. I was one entitled person. And a lot of times that maturity comes when the entitlement just goes away. And so that was an area where um, it, it, you better guarantee there were some trials in those early days. And uh, I sold my big, beautiful truck and ro- drove a red moped for a couple of years. And I learned a lot dragging my feet down 34 on that moped. Um, the second thing is this, it's in one to five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Trials cause us consciously to depend on God. That's the second thing. So these four reasons for trials being reasons for joy, 
The first is trials are described as the way to maturity, and the second is that trials cause us consciously to depend on God. Have any of you ever had a trial or seen someone in a trial where all of a sudden you saw them depending on God in a way that maybe they hadn't or you hadn't previously experienced? Reaching the end of yourself, reaching the end of your rope. Any other examples of that? Anyone ever had like a near-death experience or something that scared you? Maybe it wasn't, but you thought it was or anything like that? Often you find people quickly crying out uh, to God. Maybe people who haven't done that in a while. Um, Sometimes there's... uh, is anyone a control freak with me? I'm a bit of a control freak. This, this dynamic of trials causing us to consciously depend on God. Um, when the control freak has control taken out of their hands, that is a moment where you can consciously, maybe for the first time, depend on God. When my, uh, my son was born, he came out and had, he didn't look like the other ones. When they came out and he was wrong color and it was too quiet and it was the middle of the night. It was like 3, 4 in the morning, I guess, at the hospital. And all of a sudden, I thought we were like the only ones there, us and this poor nurse that was undoubtedly going to deliver the baby because the doctor was not close. All of a sudden, a button was hit, and whew, and there's like 20 people in there. I didn't know there were 20 people in the hospital at the time because it was so quiet. There's like 20 people in there. I'm getting pushed out of the way. Boom, boom, boom. Everything's happened. Hey, you want to hold the baby? Okay, yeah, okay, that's enough. And then boom, baby's gone. It was like, what in the world just happened? And we spent five days in the NICU because he'd had a torn lung, a pneumothorax. And so that first breath tore his lung. So I got to sit in the NICU for five days. And not a major thing. He was like the healthiest baby in the NICU. But I learned a lot about myself when I had no control over anything, especially regarding my first son. And I realized on day three that I had successfully, completely uh, reworked the NICU to be more effective in my mind. I sat there and I realized on day three of five, that I was like, okay, that baby has clearly got this issue. I'm kind of reading a chart where I can, you know, because I, I know those things. And uh, I don't. And, and then I would, I'd be like, okay, they should move. Okay, they keep having to go to that baby over there. They should move that baby over here and then put that baby over there. And then if that, and I'm literally trying to rework a NICU. I have no insight, no discernment, no wisdom in the area of a NICU. But that's what I realized I was doing. And there was that moment where I was like, um, or, you know, consciously depend on God. Like, or just, just trust God with these details. Just sit there and enjoy the fact that God is in charge of these things and don't try to grab on to that power. For power freaks, we like to grab on to anything we can get and somehow in my mind, it would be a better use of my time to rework the NICU to make it a far more effective and well-run machine um, than sit and, and depend on God for uh, keeping all of those babies alive in, in a miraculous way. There was more going on than I realized. If we do everything in our own strength, we will never learn to rely on God. If we do everything in our own strength, we will never learn to rely on God. 
It's always been this way. Who are some people in the Bible that went through this? Where they had to learn not to rely on their own strength because they were in that circumstance where their strength was insufficient. They absolutely, there was no out. They had to rely on God. Daniel, what happened with Daniel? Thrown in a lion's den. And lions are pretty powerful. And when they're hungry and not fed so that they can eat whoever's thrown in the den on purpose, um, it becomes problematic for that person because there's really nothing they can do. So Daniel had to learn to rely on God to shut the mouths of lions. Who else? What else? Gideon. Gideon. Yes. Who else? Samson. Samson. Who else? Joseph. Yeah. Thanks, brothers. Thanks, brothers, for selling me into slavery. Like, who can I depend on? Oh, I'm not going to depend on my brothers because they're the ones doing it. Yeah. Who else? The other Joseph. Yeah. That other Joseph. You're what? Yeah. What else? Who else? Huh? Moses. Moses. Yeah. How about all of Israel in Egypt? Generations being born and dying in captivity. And then once they're finally let out, (laughs) he brings them to a big sea, a wall of water while they're being pursued. There's a time and time again, this is God's normal MO, bringing people to the end of themselves, causing us to consciously depend on him. Hard situations that seem to be without a solution. So we're in those situations that are hard, seem to really not have an answer or a quick fix. Guys are terrible about just wanting to fix it. Um, those are great opportunities to consciously depend on God. Not just assume that, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I depend on God. But like, did you pray about it? Have you, have you sat before him? Have you listened? Have you gone to the word for insight, for wisdom, for discernment, and for understanding? The third reason that, that trials are a joy is because this life, its trappings and its trials will pass. We can know that in every trial, this is not the final thing, whatever the trial is, even if it takes your life. I will absolutely never forget Keith McCord talking about his cancer in front of our body. And um, you're sitting there looking at a guy who has a young kid, and you can see the cancer on his neck. He's sitting in front, and he's got a big tumor right here. And he just quotes Job. He says, though he slay me, I will praise him. And it was just like, he clearly understands that that is not the, 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 the end. That, 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 that trial is not everything. And he said, though he slay me, I will worship him. And he slayed him. He did not live through that, but death did not conquer him because of his faith in Christ. Uh, One of the most powerful testimonies, I will never for the rest of my life forget him standing up there and saying that. But in 1.9 it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a crown of life that should give you perspective in every trial. The crown of life should give you perspective in every single trial. The fourth thing is found in verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
Trials are a reason for joy because we're promised that they're part of God's purposes, unlike these temptations to evil, which are really just temptations to death. We've got to see here that in the trials, God does not tempt us. We are tempted and enticed and lured by our own desires and by the enemy. And God's not our enemy. So he will test us in those trials and he will grow us and he will, in fact, mature us and make us consciously depend on him and, and reveal to us an eternal perspective that helps us, but he never, ever tempts us. Trials help us to learn how to put our faith and trust in God when we can't immediately see a solution. This means we cannot take our direction from our emotions. So this, there's this reality that comes into focus here that emotions aren't bad. I want to be careful about this because sometimes we can talk about emotions as if they just lie to us. Well, God gave us emotions, and emotions can help us to understand kind of where we are in different things, and emotions can help us to help other people because we, we are to help those who are, who are sad and who are downtrodden and who are heavy laden. We are, to, we are to bear one another's burdens, and so emotions help with those things. But here, there's a reality, there's a biblical reality here that just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. There was a season in my life where I genuinely dealt with depression, and I had to tell myself that morning after morning after morning after morning when I didn't want to get out of bed. I had to, I had to say, okay, you feel like today is, is worthless. You feel like you're never going to get to a point where you don't feel the way you do now. And just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that it is a certain way. We have to trust God's word and God's promises specifically in our trials because our emotions will lead us astray. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. I mean, have you ever had that? Just Usually the feeling is attached to a relationship, right? So like if you wake up and I don't feel appreciated by someone. I don't feel appreciated. I don't feel um, you know, valued. Or I don't feel like that person respects me. Or I don't feel like, you know, this is a good job for me or whatever it might be, that can like throw your day so sideways before the day even starts that it's a good reminder in those moments that, um, that our, our emotions can, just because you feel a certain way does not mean that is reality. It could be your perception, but it is not reality. Um, we take our direction from God through scripture and through his people. We have to remember that a lot of times when we're wrapped up in emotions and we're hurting, we want to isolate ourselves. And there's a reality here, and James says, don't do that because you need God, you need his word, and you need it spoken to you by people who love you to bear your burden. Dever says, who knows what greater troubles, this is a great perspective, who knows what greater troubles our Heavenly Father has spared us from by the trials he has allowed to come our way. It's a different way of thinking about it. You know, that'll help you appreciate your trials by considering man, there could have been worse things that this trial um, saved me from. I know I've experienced that in my own life. Myth number two. So myth number one is trials are bad. Myth number two is faith is what I think. Faith is what I think. Does that strike anyone that that's a myth? Does that hit you weird? Faith is what I think. Yeah. Yeah, it can be very relative. Yeah. This one's true at first glance, but not completely true because it's incomplete. 
That's not very clear, so I'll try to clarify this. It's not completely true because it's incomplete. There's more to it. Faith is what I think is a myth because there's much more to faith than just what you think. How and what we think is really, really, really important. I I, want to be careful in this because I don't want to minimize the importance of our thoughts. Our thoughts are wildly important throughout Scripture. In Scripture, we're commanded to take our thoughts captive. In Scripture, we are commanded to set our minds on the things above. In Romans 12, we're called to be transformed, our, our lives transformed by the renewal of our minds. So there's no need to minimize the importance of how we think. But the point here is that thinking is not enough. Faith cannot happen up in your head only. And James is emphatic about it because he's addressing, remember, he's addressing a church. We're gonna, it, as we kind of near the second half of this thing, we're going to see it's a little bit more personal. He's addressing a church, and here what we're seeing is that it can't just be up in your head. Look at 119. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So if you hear it, but you're not doing it, you are deceiving yourself. I mean, think about what that's saying. You can go to a Bible study and deceive yourself. You can do your morning devotion and deceive yourself. You can listen to podcasts and sermon online, sermons online and deceive yourselves if that has no purchase in the actual activity of your life. There's, there was a phrase that Dever used in his book. He called it a, a toxic buildup of spiritual information. Like There's so much spiritual information that people have, it's like a toxic buildup if it's not showing itself in people being doers of the word. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Meaning, the Bible tells you what you're like. When, we hear, when you hear teaching, when you hear preaching, it tells you what you are like. But if you just hear it and walk away... Then, then you're losing sight of how it's supposed to shape you. It, 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 nothing is a, is a clearer mirror than the Word. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. So not only must you do, but in the doing, it helps you to not forget what you've heard, in the application of it, in the movement of it, in the, in the sort of rubber meets the road of it. This is a really easy place to deceive ourselves. Why is... Why, is, why and how is this an easy place to deceive ourselves? It's like, now that I know those things about parenting, I'm good. But if I don't apply them to my conversation with my kids, it doesn't, you're not being a doer of the word. I know those things about finances, but if, but, but if I don't actually apply it to my finances, then apparently I'm going to even forget that at some point because I'm not being a doer of the word. There's, a, there's an old uh, phrase that I just thought about that because my, my dad used to say it all the time. 
me and all my brothers are over six feet tall, and we were mostly all, you know, played a lot of sports and everything, and uh, some better than others. And uh, my dad is five foot eight. So all me and my brothers are around. I got one brother that's, I got two brothers that are taller than me, uh, a little wider too. And, um, but my dad's like, you know, down here, he's five foot eight. And so he would always coach everything and, and he'd tell us to do something when he was coaching us and, and we'd go, why don't you do it? And he was like, what was the phrase? He said, you know, the, those who can't play coach or something like that, something along those lines. Like, and then he would, his, he would always use the Bill Cosby line, the do as I say, not as I do. I brought you into this world. I can take you out, make one just like you, all that kind of stuff. And so not real popular quote Bill Cosby anymore. I, I'm just realizing that now as I say that out loud. But, um, but, uh, but no, he, w- he would say that sort of the do as I say, not as I do, because I'm the coach, I don't have to do it. But we can't take that approach in, in Christianity we can't have this approach on, no, I, I know how to run the plays. I know the playbook. I know the insight. I know the wisdom. I know, I know, how, to, I know how the game works. I don't have to play it to, to master the game. I mean, that's kind of a coaching, um, sometimes a flawed leadership mentality that does not fit with Christian leadership. So there is no room to say, um, oh, man, I could teach on, 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 on finances. I could teach on parenting, I can teach on relationships, I can teach on purity, I can teach on memorizing the word, I can teach on the importance of church history. I, I mean, I'm in seminary right now, there's, there's classes on everything, and there is no limit to the number of things you can really, really know and do nothing with. And so there is no room to be sort of a coach mentality of do as I say, not as I do, because all of us should hear and say and do what is, what is in the word because otherwise we, we deceive ourselves. Um, religion and faith, in 126, it says, if anyone thinks he, 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 so this is, sometimes we read James in a choppy manner, but then he just keeps going and he says in 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's easy to organize a big orphan and widow ministry, but if you never actually, I mean, frankly, if we're a bunch of professing Christians and we don't know any orphans or widows, um, that's a problem because this says it's your religion's worthless. But he's given this example of our tongue and what we do with our tongue. And what we see here is that religion and faith that are cognitively believed but not lived out are worthless and unacceptable to God. God's not pleased with how much you know if you're not doing anything with it. You dive into chapter 2, and it all starts moving a little more quickly, and we find James applying this reality to a situation that the church was dealing with, namely favoritism. So he sets this precedent that this is what it means to be a believer. You have to be hearers and doers. You will go through trials. You have to count those trials as joy. And so now let's address this thing called favoritism that's going on in your church. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he goes on to explain this dynamic where someone is wearing nicer things so they get a nicer seat. It would be like someone pulling up here in uh, you know, a, a really nice high-end you know, Bugatti sports car or whatever, and it's like, oh, wow, hey, nice to meet you. Hey, why don't you come sit up, sit up in the front here? And, and you, know, you kind of show them favor. That's kind of what was going on in this situation. And he says... Um, 
Have you not then, in verse 4, made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which is promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. In showing this favoritism and this partiality to the rich man, you guys are dishonoring the poor, and the poor have just as much of a purchase and of inheritance as any rich man could ever have. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So James makes a direct connection between not being doers of the word and the fact that this church was showing partiality to people with money. And then he follows that up with a stern warning in 2.14. He says, what good is it, my brothers? This is the popular warning of James. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well-filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I mean, just this emphatic, like, if someone has something that they need and you have it, and you just tell them, God bless you, what good is that? Just this emphatic question that does not have a good answer. There is nothing good with that. that that's empty, that's flawed, that's hollow, that's senseless. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, not knowing what the immediate solution was, right? He didn't know there was a ram in the thicket when he was about to take you know, the move of obedience. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what do we learn from faith in those verses? What do we learn about faith? Just quick, don't, it's not a trick question. What do we learn about faith? Yeah, you rather see a sermon than hear one? That's good. It requires action. What else? And not applied is dead. He, I mean, James wants to be super clear. It's a very, very practical book. And it brings us to the third part. The third myth is that religion is a private matter. Religion is a private matter. Funny it was a problem then, and maybe just as much of a problem now. Why is this such a popular notion today of religion being a private matter in our culture It's a way to avoid accountability. Can I talk to you about that? No, nah, it's between me and God. I'm, I'm good. Me and him, good. You, not so much. Why else is it so popular today, the notion of religion being a private matter? Yeah. Yeah, it's convenient. There's, there's, there's no um, 
There's no inconveniences according to schedule. You, you, you can totally opt in or out of church, which means you can opt in or out of being inconvenienced by other sinners in need of grace. Um, it's kind of that, that mentality of people showing up to church and wondering why it's full of sinners. is like showing up to the hospital and wondering why it's full of sick people. And then people are like, ah, I'll opt out. I remember in my early days as an immature you know, goober of a minister saying like, man, ministry's great except for you know, people can be really difficult sometimes. It's like, well, what is ministry then? What is this Christian walk that we have if you can't endure with difficult people knowing full well you're sometimes the difficult person that others are enduring with? Why else is it a popular notion today? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. Uh, Entitlement says don't put any restrictions on me. So then why, if someone who doesn't like any restrictions, why would religious being private, religion being private be appealing for someone who doesn't like restrictions? They don't want their religion to be defined. Okay. Why else? There's no judgment. Yeah, right? No one wants to offend and no one wants to be offended in our culture of millennial pansies. No one wants to offend or be offended. I'll not tolerate your intolerance. It's sort of the mantra of of our time. This perspective on religion is the main oomph of this letter. Uh, I wrote oomph, U-M-P-H, because I just didn't have a better word. The main oomph, the main drive, the main catalyst of this letter. Um, and it addresses, allow, it addresses the main problem in this, this church that he's writing to is a stress-ridden, faction-brown church. And he's really addressing division here. The, he's addressing this myth that religion is a private matter because he's addressing division, which is fitting because in our churches there's a lot of division. I mean, Baptists, sadly, are often known by how how they can fight over anything, the color of the carpet, the color of paint. Why did that church split? Because they couldn't decide on some inconsequential, silly, small little matter, and everyone had to have their vote because they're more American than they are a Christian. And so he's addressing division here. Um, I've got lots of thoughts on that if you want to hear that more. I'm just it's holding back right now. Um, do what? Yeah, yeah, no. Yes, um, I'm not going to do that. Um, read about the fo- I want to read aloud the following and consider what we learn about the church. Look at 4.13. I'm going to kind of skip around, but just consider what do we learn about the church in these verses as we read them. 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? <laughs> it's such a... like. He's addressing real people who have a real problem in the way they're acting. And he, what is your life? I mean, I love it. I love, I love the tone of this. For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. So from those verses, what do we learn about these Christians in this church that he's addressing? They are blank. Arrogant about what? 
their plans. Yeah, they're arrogant and boastful about the future. So the first thing that we know about this church that he's writing to is that they're boastful about the future. Christians are boastful about the future. And it's interesting that last thing, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. That's not disconnected. That's connected to the fact that they're boastful about the future. What does it mean? What do you think it means? Yes, hold your plans loosely because God can change them in an instant. So what he's saying here is that some of you will know the right thing to do and you're going to fail to do it because you already had your plan. You already had what you were going to do. We're going to go to this place. We're going to run this business. We're going to trade this thing. And God could very easily say, nope, I want you to go here. Or nope, you're not going there. Or nope, you're not going to stay there for as long as you expected. And he can change the plans. I have watched God change plans. That's probably... A big old chunk of the counseling we do pastorally is God changed someone's plans or there was a curveball or something that wasn't seen. And you see that Christians can sometimes be really boastful about the future. I mean, another way to explain being boastful about the future is saying, that is not what my plan was. That is, that is not how my family was going to turn out. That is not how my job situation was going to go. That is not my three, five, seven, and 10-year plan. That is not how I envision it. This is not the marriage that I thought I was going to have. These are not the friends that I thought I was going to have. This is not the church. I mean, those are very, very boastful because you are in control. And God at any point in time can say, no, I want you to go over there. I want you to go over there. And if you're so set on your plans and boastful about the future and arrogant about what you have in store, you miss what he has in store. And so he says, you know the right thing to do, but you fail to do it. For you, it's a sin. Like, don't forget... And all of your planning and all of your, um, the wisdom that you're trying to exercise, it's okay to have a plan, right? I mean, this isn't an anti-business plan you know, piece of scripture. It's okay to say, okay, we're going to go here. We're going to make a plan. This is what we're going to do. But the, the thing that's not okay when you're making a job move or a house move or, or a transition as a family or whatever it might be, the thing that's not okay is stopping listening to God. And if you're so set on what you want to happen and how you want it to happen, the inevitable side effect is that you will stop listening to God. And when God says to do something and you know it's right, but you're not going to do it because you've got your dang plan over here, James is saying, let's not forget that's just a sin. That's what he's saying. I appreciate the wisdom. I appreciate the plan. I appreciate all the thought you put into that. But let's say you put a ton of thought into this thing God steers you in another direction. You say, nope, I'm just too invested over here. James is like, let's just call it what it is. For you to do that is a sin. So they're boastful about the future. And then 119, it says this. 119 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why would he say that? It's a pretty short letter. He's not just, you know, stream of thought. Maybe I'll talk about this. The problem is that not only are they boastful about the future, but they're quick to become short with one another and use hurtful words. They're quick to become short with one another and use hurtful words. And then in 3.9, it says, uh, 
with it, the mouth, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So they're boasting about the future, they're quick to become short with one another, use hurtful words, and on top of that, they're cursing each other. And then in 4.11, it says, do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So they're not only cursing each other, but now they're slandering each other. So I'm going to curse you, and then I'm going to do that to other people. That's, that's slandering. That's, that's what this church looks like, and this church isn't supposed to look like that. And it's a heart issue. Every, all behavior communicates something that's going on in the heart. It says in 5.9, um, do not grumble against one another. So on top of that, they're grumbling against one another. And then in 5.1, it says, Come now, you who rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which, kept, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God is saying, when you don't pay people what you should pay people, I care about it. Like it's, it's like this thing that we had in Philemon. There was, a, there was a, a break between Philemon and Onesimus. And God had Onesimus run into Paul in prison and get saved and send him back to Philemon. And just this reminder, like God cared about the fact that they were at odds with each other. And here again, God's saying, I care when one of those laborers, who you might not even know who their name is, I hear their cries when they don't get paid because you are a fraudulent fake. You're a Christian. You shouldn't do that. So they were oppressing the poor. So all these things are going on in this church, and behind all the division, there seems to be careless teaching. Chapter 3 says, not many of you should be teachers. Bringing about a correction that maybe too many of you are teachers, and the teaching has fallen a little flat because this is what's going on in the church. Dever says, our speech is not mainly for expressing ourselves. It's for expressing God's character. James fittingly follows up, follows this up with the main reason the church has fallen into the poor use of their words and the poor use of their time and the poor treatment of one another and the poor treatment of the poor. It's because of worldliness. That's the big problem in this church. Those things that were happening, the way they were talking, their view of money, they're being fraudulent, they were oppressing the poor, they're slandering each other, they were cursing each other. All these things were happening because of what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Chapter 4, verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I mean, he's, when he says resist the devil, he's saying resist the devil's temptation to be boastful about the future. Resist being quick-tempered. Resist being quick to speak. Resist this, 
this, the opposites that you come in with. Resist cursing each other. Resist slandering one another. Resist grumbling against one another. Resist oppressing the poor. Resist putting all your hope in your money. And resist putting all your hope in your friends. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So there's this worldliness that is at play um, in this church. Finally, in the, in the uh, final chapter, he warns the rich not to put their hope in their money. So he's, he's given this strong warning, but then he's like, okay, here's the deal. It's not bad to be rich. It's just bad to put your hope in your riches. Um, the love of money is the root of all evil, evil not money. Money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. So he says, don't put your hope in your money. Be patient when you suffer because there's more going on there because there's a God in charge of all the things behind the scenes. And then he finally closes with this word on prayer in 513 and says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. This, you know, the religion thing can't just be private. That's the myth is being exploded. It can't just be between you and God. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I mean, those the healing that comes from the sickness of your sins has to do with other people being involved in the equation. The prayer of a righteous person has great powers that is working. You should want people who are righteous and moving in an upright manner to pray for you because apparently when they do, it's really powerful. And any time that I have been called as one of the elders to go pray for someone, I make it a point to confess my sins because there's, I don't want to bring a bunch of unrighteousness into that prayer and weaken it when it could be more powerful because of righteousness that is in Christ. said, so Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. There's this reality about prayer that should marvel us and leave us kind of in an interesting state in its mystery. But there are things that you will not have unless you pray for them. And there are things that you will only have if you pray for them rightly. So, so can I change God's mind? No. But part of God's plan is that he will give you things if you pray for them. And there's some things you don't have because you haven't prayed about it. There's some things that you will have because you pray about it rightly. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I can't help but wonder if that wasn't a motivation for writing this. I mean, some people could have looked at this church that James is writing to and said, that's not even a church, a bunch of losers. They're so backwards. They're misrepresenting Jesus. They're messing with each other. They're hurting each other. They're oppressing the poor. They're worldly. They're all about the money. This is not even a church. But I think there's this motivation from James saying, bring people back from their wandering. Anyone who saves someone and brings them back and shares gospel will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word, and uh, we're thankful for how it 
how it shapes us. And my, my prayer tonight is that we would let it shape us, that we would not leave here only hearing these things, but that we would look for application, that we would look for those opportunities and those places in our life where we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Uh, we love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.